Heavenly Father, as we consider now the meaning of the death of your Son, help me to preach faithfully by your Holy Spirit. Help us to appreciate the agony and the achievement of the cross, that we might respond rightly to Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Or well, are you clinging to Christ alone to get you to heaven? Or are you trusting in yourself? Are you clinging to Christ alone to get you to heaven? Or are you trusting in yourself? I think there is always a temptation to fall back into the mindset of thinking that it's our own good works or our own religious effort that will make us acceptable to God. That if we are upright and religious, if we are good Christians, God will welcome us to heaven. In some churches, it's common practice during Lent to engage in certain practices of self-denial. Uh, we deny ourselves certain pleasures in an effort to control our earthly passions and grow in self-control. Perhaps we give up eating meat, or we give up social media, uh, or even something else. Uh, some of us maybe like to give up exercise or something like that. Now, there is a great danger that in those exercises, that instead of clinging to Christ alone to get us to heaven, we begin to trust in ourselves, to start thinking that our own moral or religious efforts is what will make the difference. So what about you? Are you clinging to Christ alone to get you to heaven? Or are you trusting in yourself? Well, of course, in this Palm Sunday, we remember how Christ rode into Jerusalem in authority as God's promised king. Adored by the crowds, they placed their robes before him in an act of submission. They shouted his praises. But as we know, in but a matter of days, the situation would be very different. As the crowds no longer shouted for his praises, but shouted, for his death. Uh, on that day, he rolled on a donkey, not just to identify himself as the king, as he fulfilled Zechariah 9, but to make clear what his mission was. He was on a donkey, not a war horse, because he came not to fight, but to die. And in the chapters that follow, he's been preparing his disciples for his death. He explains in the Last Supper, his body will be broken, his blood will be shed as he dies on the cross to pay for our sins. He'll be numbered with the transgressors. The innocent one will die in place of the guilty as he bears on himself all the guilt and punishment we deserve. But in this uh, precious passage that we have just had dramatized for us, Luke gives us some insight into the agony and the achievement of the cross. At Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives, he contrasts the obedience and faithfulness of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus to the end with the failure and frailty of all around him. And the point is this, that we learn to trust in him alone and not in ourselves. So firstly, then, we see the loving obedience of the Son, his sacrifice. The loving obedience of the Son, his sacrifice. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. He came out and went, as 
was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. Now we've been told earlier in Luke 22 that the religious leaders are seeking an opportunity to arrest Jesus, but they want to do it away from the crowd so there will be no stir. Nevertheless, Jesus, we're told, follows his normal custom, knowing that this is a death wish. He goes away from the city, away from the crowds, to the very place he knew that Judas would find him. He's deliberately giving himself up. Verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. Jesus knows what's ahead for his disciples. Just a few verses before this, he warns that Satan is going to sift them like wheat. He predicts Peter's going to deny him three times, that he even knows him. And he says it would have been worse if Jesus hadn't prayed for them. Jesus knows his disciples will fail. They will desert him. They're weak. They're vulnerable. They need to pray, trusting in God's strength, not their own. And Jesus knows he must pray too. Verse 41 of the passage, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup Jesus is speaking of here is the cup of God's wrath. We read of it in Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup is a metaphor for the just anger of God that is going to be poured out upon the wicked, the, the unrestrained ocean of God's righteous wrath on sin. Now, we might not like the idea that God gets angry, but the Bible says God will not turn a blind eye to evil. He's angry with sin. And Jesus knows that on that cross, he must take that dreadful cup and drink it all. He must take upon himself God's punishment on sin. He must face the tsunami of God's anger for us. I think it's very hard for us to imagine the pain that Jesus had to bear. Jesus, the one who has been in eternal loving relationship with his Father, the obedient Son who has always loved and been loved, he must face the wrath of his Father. He must be forsaken crushed for our iniquities. Now, that's why in the garden he prays in torment, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's saying, if there's any other way to save humanity from sin, if there's any other way to make people right with you, if there's any other way, without me needing to face your righteous anger on the cross. Please, Lord, please provide it. Take this cup from me. Such is the horror of facing the wrath of God. 
Now we're told that an angel came and strengthened him. God truly loves his son. He's listening to his prayer. He's going to give him grace for what comes ahead. But it is clear there is only one path ahead. The cross. And as Jesus contemplates his fate, his agony and his prayers only intensify. Verse 44 says, Being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. If you look in your Bible, there's a footnote there. It tells us the earliest manuscripts don't have that, 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 that verse. It wasn't written by Luke. It was added later by scribes. But it is an accurate summary of the agony of Jesus. Matthew in his gospel tells us Jesus was sorrowful and troubled, sorrowful even to death, overwhelmed at the thought of what was to come. Now I hope you see here that, the, that what Jesus fears is not so much the physical agony of the cross, don't get me wrong, it was excruciating pain. They invented that word to describe the cross. But the real agony was the spiritual torture as he'd suffered God's wrath for our sins. Now, when I was a young child, uh, we used to play with a magnifying glass in the garden and we'd focus the sun's rays down on some leaf or maybe some unsuspecting ant. And all the rays, scorching rays of the sun would be then focused down onto one point and that leaf would ignite as it burnt. And that is what is going on here. That's what Jesus feared. All the righteous wrath of God on the sins of the whole world through all time will be focused down on Jesus, at one moment, on one man, at the cross. The sinless son will be forsaken. God's beloved son consumed. The son itself goes dark as Jesus dies. As God's judgment falls in totality on him alone. And yet we're told Jesus was willing. He prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think we're used to thinking that Jesus went to the cross primarily for us. Because he loves us. Because he wants to save us. And of course that's true. He does love us. And he did come to save us. But you see there's an even more fundamental reason why Jesus went to that cross. And that's because he loved his Father. Because he treasured his Father's will above everything else. Now, back in the 1600s, there was a radical change in thought that was known as the Copernican Revolution. Up to that point, people thought that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything else went around it. But then it was shown, actually, the Earth wasn't the center of our solar system. It was, in fact, the sun. And we need our own Copernican revolution as well. We need to realize life is not just about us. It's about God. Not my will, but his. Not my honor, 
but God's glory. And so do you see, Jesus didn't go to the cross so that he could bless me with money, or get me a job promotion, or get straight A's in my SPM exams. That might be my will, but Jesus didn't come to do my will. He came to do God's will. You see, the cross is the supreme act of loving obedience of the Son to his Father. And such is the infinite love and wisdom of God that his obedience to his Father's will secures our salvation too. But Luke wants us to see in the rest of this passage just how unworthy we are to receive all that Jesus has done for us. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer and came to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. Right alongside Jesus' astounding obedience, we find the appalling failure of the disciples. Weak, troubled, tired, and soon to fail. And that brings us to the second point this morning, the darkness of human sin, our failure. The darkness of human sin, our failure. See, as much as Jesus' death is the Father's will, Luke wants us to grasp the wickedness of those who caused it. We've already seen the, the, the weakness and failure of the disciples. Next, we're shown the evil of Judas. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and, a, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? For a disciple to kiss their master was the ultimate sign of, of honor and submission. But Judas turns that beautiful act into a public rejection of Jesus. It's horrific. He betrays his own master, with whom he spent three years. He's seen his miracles. He's heard his teaching. He's witnessed his compassion. He's felt his love personally. But in that dark moment, he chooses to betray him with a kiss. He may as well have done a Will Smith, slapped him in the face. Judas is a warning to us. We ever think we're above temptation. We'd never give up on Jesus. We'd never fall away. He was one of the twelve. How could we be so confident in ourselves? Next, again, we see the failure of the disciples. Verse 49, when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. Disciples' violence is a sign of their moral failure. Their failure to understand why Jesus has came. Their failure to see the necessity of the cross. Their failure to love their enemies like Jesus just taught them. And it's a stark contrast to Jesus' own determination to do his Father's will. Instead of trying to escape, he heals his enemy. He shows love and compassion 
for the very people who seek his harm. And then finally, there's the failure of the chief priests and the elders. We're told that they're personally present to see to Jesus' arrest. Verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out to him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. He's arrested as a criminal. They come armed to the teeth. And the religious leaders are there to make sure there's no mistakes. But Jesus makes it clear who's in the light and who's in the darkness. Jesus had nothing to hide as he taught day by day in public. But here they come violently by night. This is their hour, the power of darkness. So do you notice how Luke, in his gospel, puts these two themes side by side? The loving obedience of the Son, his sacrifice, and the darkness of human sin our failure. And what he wants us to grasp is that the Father's perfect will was that the perfectly obedient Son would die for the very failures who caused his death. The righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent for the guilty, the obedient for moral religious failures. We know that because this passage comes just before, uh, just after, sorry, a, a very important quotation from Isaiah 53. You look back at verse 37, Jesus says, I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. See, Jesus is well acquainted with his Father's will. It was promised long ago in Isaiah 53. He's the suffering servant. He must die to rescue sinners like you and me. Isaiah 53 says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring prolong his days. Therefore I'll divide with him a, a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, it was the Lord's will that he would die. The righteous one making the perfect sacrifice for sinners, dying in our place so that we could be forgiven. And it was the will of the Lord to raise him again on the third day, victorious and vindicated. You see, Isaiah 53 helps us to understand why the father let his son die, despite his anguished pleas and his agony in the garden. It was because the father loved him. He wanted to glorify him as the saviour, and he knew he would raise him as king. So what do we learn from this 
passion narrative this morning. The first thing we should, we should see is that the cross is the only way that sinners can be saved. If there was any other way, would God have refused the agonized request of his beloved son? If there is any other way, would God the Father have tolerated the pain of forsaking his own son, punishing him for us? Of course not. And so this passage assures us there was no other way for sinners to be saved. There is no other escape from the wrath of God. We can't be saved by our own moral works. We can't be saved by our own religious performance. We can't be saved by our church attendance or our ministry. The cross of Jesus alone is our only hope. And that means that for everyone around us who's not yet Christian, family, friends, colleagues, classmates, etc., unless they turn to Jesus and his cross, they are still on the path to judgment. Perhaps you this morning, as you come here and learn of the death of Jesus, are you willing to turn to him as your saviour today? To leave behind the old life, to trust in him alone as your king and saviour? Won't you do that? Because it is your only hope. And secondly, we're warned in this passage, don't trust in yourself, but cling to Christ alone. I mentioned at the beginning, there's always a great danger that as we go along in the Christian life, we stop trusting in Jesus and we start trusting in ourselves. We start trusting in our own moral and religious efforts, thinking that somehow by our own willpower or our own goodness, we could somehow impress God. But I hope you see in this passage, we only see the utter darkness and failure of the human soul. The, the, the moral failure and frailty of the disciples. They can't even pray without falling asleep. We're all weak. We're all compromised. Judas the apostle betrays Jesus. The religious leaders who are meant to be serving God are in the power of darkness. If you're trusting in your own moral, religious effort to get to heaven, please see, we're doomed to failure. We're weak. We're compromised. And it may seem attractive to get caught up in the traditions of Lent or to take pride in our church attendance, but never let such things deceive you as to your true spiritual state. We cannot save ourselves. The cross is the only way that we can be saved. So don't trust in yourself. Cling to Christ alone. And finally, don't take Jesus' sacrifice for granted, but let it transform you. I think if you've been a Christian for a while, it's easy to let those words, you know, Jesus died for our sins, to just kind of roll off our lips as if they were nothing and to forget what the cross really meant. But as we appreciate the agony 
and the achievement of the cross for sinful failures like us, it will bring forth a fountain of joy from deep within. It will stir up in us overwhelming gratitude, never-ceasing praise. And as we think of what Jesus did for us, we too will learn to pray, not my will, but yours. We will learn to say, I'm living not for me, I'm living for you. Not for my glory, but yours. Not my prosperity, your kingdom. As we reflect on the agony and achievement of the cross, we cling to his grace. and We offer him our lives. For failures like us, Christ and his cross are our only hope. So will you stop trusting in yourself and cling in faith to Christ alone? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for reminding us in your word of Jesus' unquestionable faithfulness and strength in the face of our undeniable frailty and failure. We thank you that he so loved you, that he was willing to embrace the cross, no matter how heavy the cost. We thank you that through his, his death, our every sin is paid and our sins are forgiven. And so help us, Lord, never to trust in ourselves but to cling to Christ alone. And Lord, let his death transform our lives so that we no longer do our will, but yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.